Chapter 1. Worldliness in a Changing World Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1. Let's play a game. Can you guess who said the following quotes and when? First quote. The children now love luxury. They have bad manners, contempt for authority. They show disrespect to their elders. They no longer rise when elders enter the room. They contradict their parents, chatter before company, gobble up desserts at the table, have immodest posture, and are tyrants over their teachers. Quote 2. The young people of today think of nothing but themselves. They have no reverence for parents or old age. They are impatient of all restraint. They talk as if they alone knew everything, and what passes for wisdom with us is foolishness with them. As for girls, they are forward, immodest, and unworthy in speech, behavior, and dress. Quote 3. I see no hope for the future of our people if they are dependent on the frivolous youth of today, for certainly all youth are reckless beyond words. When I was young, we were taught to be discreet and respectful of elders, but the present youth are exceedingly wise in their own eyes and impatient of restraint. Give up? The first and second are attributed to Socrates as loose paraphrases, which puts them in the 5th or 4th century B.C., the third is attributed to Hesiod, a great author of the 8th century B.C., but they could just as easily have come from a contemporary blog lamenting the millennial generation, right? Worrying about young people and changing times has occupied human psyches for as long as humans have been around. Middle Easterners in 1000 B.C. apparently used to complain, Why were the old days so much better than these? We know this because Israel's wisest king, Solomon, seems to have heard this enough to prompt him to write these words in his old age. Do not say, why were the old days better than these? For it's not wise to ask such questions. Wisdom, like an inheritance, is a good thing and benefits those who see the sun, that is to say those who are alive. Wisdom is a shelter as money is a shelter. But the advantage of knowledge is this. Wisdom preserves those who have it. Ecclesiastes 7, 10-12 Curmudgeonliness isn't a virtue. Wisdom is. The question is not, are the times changing? Of course they are. They always do, though now the rate of change is admittedly accelerating. Nor is the question, are these days better or worse? They're probably both. But the answer doesn't really matter if it leads us to nostalgia or triumphalism. Wisdom asks, what is changing? Why is it changing? And how will it affect us? What is the spirit of the times? What is behind the changes people are bemoaning or celebrating? How do we respond and prepare ourselves? What will be the unintended consequences when these changes meet with our human condition? Understanding our moment and knowing what to do with that understanding is called discernment. And we'll talk about it in the next chapter. The Bible passage above says that the actions of the wise are like a shelter in terrible weather. Shelter doesn't change the weather, but it protects us from the elements. Survival experts always say that shelter is the highest priority when they're lost in the wilderness. We can go days without water and weeks without food, but we often won't last the night without shelter. It buys us time and preserves our lives. God says that discerning wisdom, like shelter, 
can preserve your life. Change that changes us. The new rise of worldliness. So what do we need to be wise about? What changes do we need to understand? The main change is this. The world has become more worldly. I don't mean the world has become more sinful, though our cultural emphasis on virtue has definitely declined. The world has always been brutal, selfish, and envious, Titus 3.3, 3, while virtue has ebbed and flowed. Whether or not our culture is more wicked than our ancestors, it's definitely more worldly. We've increased our focus on getting more out of creation with less interest in the Creator. Secularism is the term we have given for severing the vital relationship between the sacred and the secular, the creation and the Creator, the world and the kingdom, matter and meaning, the city of God and the city of man. Not all forms of secularism are bad. Properly ordered secularism can embrace both understanding creation, science, and harnessing creation, technology, without denying God his place as creator and ruler over the creation. But our modern American version of secularism takes it to a different level. It is intentionally designed to drive thought of God and abstract things such as spirit and meaning out of our minds, pursuits, and conversations. Secularism shouldn't be a bad word, but the way we've practiced it in our culture has made us increasingly worldly. This form of secularism has twisted and mutated our relationship to the world in three key ways. 1. Secularism separates creation from the Creator. As a cultural system, secularism actively disregards anything that is not material. It treats spirit as irrelevant or non-existent and claims that science is the only avenue of thought pursuing what is realistic or practical. It changes the very language we use to the point where we explain our lives in biological terms because it makes us feel more enlightened. Joy is a rush of dopamine, and anger is what happens when one's amygdala hijacks the cortex. One version of secularism cuts our minds off from considering our Creator, King, and Savior. It also diminishes the depth and scope of our focus on morality and meaning. It puts God and the deeper things of life out of sight and out of mind. The God of mammon wants no competitors, and our flesh is happy to oblige Him. In a structure that blocks out every potential rival, mammon thrives unchecked. Two. Technology gratifies our visceral desires in constant and immediate ways. The sensory stimulation our technologies deliver is constantly grabbing our attention. They please our sensory drives and offer us an immediate payoff of feeling good. But this good feeling isn't a deep and rich enjoyment engaging our whole selves. When our senses are gratified, we experience a tiny chemical release in our brains that isn't joy, but it is addictive. The result is that the technologies and conveniences of our lives are actually addicting us to the shallowest experiences of human instinct and self-gratification. Before we know it, we are looking at our phone every time it beeps and snacking in the kitchen without knowing why. We play video games and watch TV instead of talking to friends, spouses, or children. We do this without even realizing how our sensory addiction is shrinking our being. The magnitude of our gratification is minimizing our lives. 
These addictive gratifications distract us from developing our higher, less visceral gratifications. They cut us off from the higher gratifications of character and virtue that find wholesome delight in truth, goodness, and that which God loves. These are the pleasures that enrich our lives and others and give context and meaning to our visceral drives. But why cultivate a garden when you can play a farming video game? Why cultivate friendships when you can stream all the highlights of friendship through scripted sitcoms online? To put it simply, why wait and toil for the real when a rush of lesser pleasure can be had at the press of a button? To harness these things as blessings rather than being enslaved to them, we must actively escape diversion and embrace discipline in a culture of formation. 3. Why don't we correct course? Because we've silenced our warning sirens. God created the world in such a way that pain would be the natural consequence of our vice. This was both a judicial and loving action. In the Bible, God uses that pain to counter human selfishness and stubbornness. Secular modernity has channeled much of our human creativity into developing systems and technologies designed to save us from the natural consequences of wickedness and foolishness. Alleviating self-inflicted suffering can produce a brutal, unintended consequence. It can shield us from the wake-up call pain offers. It hides the relationship between our actions and their consequences. We will reap what we sow, we just don't always reap it in the moment. The natural warnings are silenced, allowing us to trespass further and further into our own ruin. Galatians 2, chapter 6, verses 7 through 10. This worldly form of secularism has made us more interested in self-esteem, sensual gratification, social engineering, personal dreams and visions, unrestrained consumption, our projected image, and the governmentalization of life. Correspondingly, our culture has become less concerned with faith, virtue, wisdom, self-discipline, productivity, perseverance, godliness, fraternity, humility, cheer, hope, prudence, and self-sacrificial love. With all the gains of science and technology, something fundamental to our spirituality and our humanity has correspondingly declined. We have cast off substance in favor of the allure of subsistence. The Bible calls this predictable human phenomenon worldliness and repeatedly warns believers about its choking effect, especially in times of increasing prosperity. It has always plagued humanity, but it has been intensified and mutated in our time. Therefore, we need to listen with more attention than any generation in history to the Bible's teaching on worldliness, how it functions, and how it is overcome. The problem with worldliness isn't just that it's sinful. Not is it just that worldliness makes us feel stuck and frustrated in our faith in Christ. Like the plant in the parable in Mark 4, the choking thorns of worldliness crush our life and our humanity. Worldliness always creates a crisis of substance. It makes us shallow, vaporous, unstable, and brittle. It predictably leads to misery. Even the visceral pleasures of the body, pleasures we were designed to enjoy, become deranged and unsatisfying as they are separated from their created purpose. We, Jesus' church, living in modern secular culture, are suffering terribly from this crisis of substance. The threat is not only that we are being strangled, we are not becoming the oaks of righteousness we were made to be. Isaiah 61 verse 3. 
Seeing our environment with fresh eyes. So what is the first step of faith out of this predicament? Before we can thrive, we must reckon with the environmental cause of our lack of substance, specifically among Americanized Christians like you and me. Namely, we have to see the unseen effect of our culture in shaping our character and how modernity can hollow us out even while filling us up. We have to see not just how modern secularism affects our visceral human desires, even more importantly, we have to see how it affects our human condition and human nature. Modern Christians must somehow embrace creation through human creativity and productivity in a way that causes a flowering, not a forgetting, of love and devotion to our Creator and His ways. There's another way to be modern, a way of fulfillment and substance, it is possible to receive fully God's gift of creation without worshiping it as mammon. We can receive God's physical gifts through science and technology without losing that same Creator's gifts of spiritual substance through faith and virtue. Thankfully, we worship the God who is spirit yet became flesh. We follow the Creator who entered creation. We know the news of the one who hates worldliness yet so loved the world that he gave his life to save it and to give it life. John 3.16 But is Jesus really enough? What if it feels like trusting him isn't working? Our Secret Faith Many Christians recognize at some point that their faith isn't working. They aren't experiencing the transformation they see promised in the Bible or talked about in church. Some quit. Some feel deeply disillusioned. Some just feel stuck, like they aren't growing. The reason our faith isn't working usually isn't what most people think. It's not because the gospel isn't true. It isn't even that we don't believe it. The gospel isn't transforming us because we believe in a second religion. It's mostly unconscious, yet forms what we think is real even more deeply than Christ does. This second subconscious religion is worldliness. In the introduction, we looked at Jesus' warning. No one can serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. Matthew 6, 24. What's not working is that we're trusting in Jesus and in worldliness at the same time. We tend to dismiss this answer. We can't have fallen into something that simple, that obvious. But we have, and we do. How did this happen? We never accepted mammon as our Lord and Savior, did we? So how can we have two faiths, two religions? The answer for many of us is that while we confessed one, we absorbed a second. Absorbed before confessed. We believe in Jesus. We're trying to learn the Bible. We want to be good parents, friends, and spouses. We want to honor God rightly, walk in the Spirit, and feel His purpose in our lives. No one wants to be fragile or shallow. Having come to trust the crucified, risen, and returning Christ, this is the faith we confess. Even if you aren't a Christian, you want on some level to be loving, joyful, and dutiful in what is right. Yet, all the while, beneath the surface, we are being persuaded of a completely different vision of reality. How? It's not happening in the form of an open argument or public explanation. We're not being persuaded of it by logic and facts. We absorb it through the environment of our culture. This faith comes into our hearts unhindered by our conscious thought 
being absorbed through the technologies, institutions, and structures of our modern secular life. We aren't drinking it in a shot glass. We are breathing it in every day. Like a heavy mist, it has gradually soaked us to the bone. This is the faith we absorb. Worldliness persuades us through saturation in an environment full of cars, roads, shopping malls, disposable commodities and trash removal, birth control, electricity, and indoor plumbing, schools, restaurants, grocery stores, pharmaceuticals, and hospitals, professional sports and traveling children's sports teams, five-day work weeks, Photoshop, washing machines, mortuaries, data streaming, and global travel, just to name a few. These technologies and structures, though immensely enriching, also have the cumulative effect of persuading us of a competing vision of reality without ever saying a word. This vision tells us we are first, we are safe, we ought to be comfortable, life should be convenient. Things we don't like or that aren't working are disposable. Reality can be edited. A doctor can fix unhealthy living. Love, sex, and children are disconnected. We don't have to look death in the face, and so on and so on. We don't have to submit to reality if we can control it. It's critical to understand that we absorb this second faith, which we believe at least as deeply as the other one about Jesus. The key difference is that because we absorbed this one, it feels more real and therefore makes Jesus seem a little imaginary. My wife said once, when the world has formed you, you just feel like it knows you. When it deceived your heart, it feels like it's the only one speaking your heart language when it talks. And it steals your trust. That's a critical insight. It never argued with us. It persuaded us without actually telling us what it wanted us to believe. As a result, when we hear its explanations, we think it has found our hearts. It sounds so reasonable, so insightful. In truth, worldliness's message matches our hearts because it has been secretly reprogramming them for some time. Having found a voice that satisfies us, we are left feeling like the voice of our Creator is foreign and He doesn't really know us. We feel He and His message are out of touch and unbelievable. He is right in front of us, but we don't recognize Him. That sounds an awful lot like a verse in the Bible about Jesus. Though the world was made through Him, the world did not recognize Him. John 1.10 Not only have we been absorbing worldliness through our environments, but secular modernity is structured to sustain worldliness and deliver it to us in every sphere of life. When left unexamined, it's typically a much bigger influence on us than a thousand sermons. It's like Jesus is radio, and our culture is an immersive virtual reality experience. If our culture is increasingly worldly, then isn't it likely we are more worldly than we have yet dared to imagine? Consequently, in our emotion, perceptions, and choices, our culture is overcoming our confession. But it doesn't have to be this way. The deformational culture is most powerful when it is most unseen. So the first step in escaping it is to bring it to light. Formational and Deformational Cultures why call our culture deformational rather than just evil? No human culture is all evil or all good. They're all made up of a mixture of common grace and worldliness. The discerning question is, what happens when our human condition is set loose in a given culture? 
does the culture's structure serve to develop virtue, wisdom, and faith, or does it offer an alternative to faithful, virtuous dignity while gratifying our flesh? And how does its structure affect our formation in faith, virtue, and substantive discipleship? Is the gospel's relevance displayed or obscured by our culture? Defining Deformational Culture Any culture that tends strongly to obscure the gospel and exacerbate the flesh can be referred to as deformational culture. And our culture doesn't just tend toward deformation. It is designed to gratify our flesh, to be worldly. It is designed to provide substances for humans, not to produce substance in humans. Secular modernity is designed to support human desires, our dreams, our compassion, our projected image, and our self-esteem, not to evaluate, develop, or regulate them. It doesn't build substantive character because it isn't designed to. The human need for spiritual and moral transformation is not the problem it is designed to solve. We have crafted it to ensure the gratification and expression of our human desires. The tragic irony of secular modernity is the very way it gratifies our visceral longings. It eviscerates our longing for grace. As it feeds our flesh, it hollows out our spirit. According to Jesus, the evaluation, recording, and regulation of our desires is the formation we need most. In fact, substance is a prerequisite for great human expression of passion and emotion. Jesus has come to show us how our desires have gone wrong, evaluation slash conscience, what the right objects for our desires are, reordering slash conviction, and how to express them rightly, regulation slash persevering self-control. This isn't stuffing or repressing our desires and emotions. It is preparing them for beautiful and constructive expression. God has created a formational counterculture, the church slash body of Christ, to help us break free from the worldliness that disorders and deadens our desires. The body of Christ is a gospel culture with a system of beliefs, relationships, connections, commitments, technologies, structures, and institutions designed to help us become what we are meant to be in Christ and to overcome the deformational culture of secular modernity in which we are living. Look at how Peter describes it in 2 Peter 1, verses 3 through 9, the passage from the introduction. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him, who called us by His own glory and goodness. Through these, He has given us His very great and precious promises— so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. But if anyone does not have them, he is nearsighted and blind, and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 3-9, through 9, NIV, 1984. Peter emphasizes both the negative and positive application of trusting in Jesus to become substantive disciples, escaping worldly corruption, and making every effort to grow in godliness. He leads with what may sound like overtly spiritual wording in verses 3 and 4, because it's essential that we not fall into the conservative forms of worldliness, legalism, and moralism. We normally think of worldliness as being liberal and lawless, but curing lawlessness with legalism is no gain, and it isn't God's goal. He wants to cure all worldliness, not just half of it. He wants to bring us into full remission. We'll talk about this in depth in chapters 5 and 6. 
So he starts with the gospel. God, because he is glorious and good, has used his divine power to give us everything we need for life and godliness in the crucified and risen Christ. All of the divine resources we need for knowing God and escaping the corruptions of worldliness are given in Christ as a sheer gift through faith. Our next questions are ones of application. What are we told to do with these gifts, and how do we participate in the divine nature? We'll look at these questions in parts 2 and 3 of this book. The word translated evil desire in 2 Peter 1 verse 4 means craving or lust, referring to a desire that's out of place and out of control. Cravings and lusts are strange paradoxes because they are, like a river's rapids, intense yet shallow. Rapids are not just shallow and fast. They're full of hazards covered over with an insubstantial froth of bubbles in the fast water. Therefore, in the quick and shallow water lie hazards that will wreck you, hazards that wouldn't threaten you in deeper water. That's what our corrupted evil desires make us, intense yet shallow, forceful yet fragile, utterly committed yet completely fickle, and therefore utterly self-destructive and dangerous. When they have their way, they make our minds foolish and our emotions erratic. We are thrown around between fear, anger, pride, boredom, anxiety, diversion, resentment, wrath, lust, sensuality, envy, amusement, sloth, ridicule, fickle attention, thoughtless gossip, and a hundred vaporous froths of our moral weightlessness. Corruption, then, is the effect of anything used to fulfill and confirm these cravings. Corruption, then, is the effect of anything used to fulfill and confirm these cravings. Even good things like food, sex, art, technology, or any of the blessings of modern subsistence or convenience. What makes secular modernity so deformational is not that its structures are inherently bad, but that when it's applied to our evil desires, it's like sugar to a diabetic or a perfectly innocent cocktail to a raging alcoholic. It terribly exacerbates the sinful condition, and if we're honest, that's why we like it. Like licking a wound, it cools the momentary itch of our condition, yet replaces the discomfort of actual healing with a deeper, festering infection. Deformational culture morally affirms our evil desires. It mitigates the natural consequence of our foolishness while normalizing our perversity and gratifying our evil desires, strengthening them into habits. It makes godliness seem foreign, illogical, surreal, and judgmental. It frames evil as good, ugliness as beauty, and falsehood as truth. The more it influences us in our sinful condition, the more deformed we become. The less we realize our absorption of it, the more rapid, powerful, and complete its effect. Defining Formational Culture While the deformational culture intensifies these evil desires, partly innocently and partly by design, knowledge of Christ reframes and renews our desires in relationship to the truth in the culture of Christ. This is possible through union with Christ. The passage quoted earlier from Second Peter is especially instructive. When Peter exhorts Christians to make every effort to add to your faith goodness. He doesn't mean add to Christ's death and resurrection in terms of what saves us. He means trusting in Christ for forgiveness and adding to that, trusting him in everything else. Faith can become faithfulness and spiritual substance when we apply this truth. This requires intentional departure from deformational community and engagement in the formational culture of Christ. 
It means first believing that, with Christ's divine power in you, you really do have everything you need to find substance. Then, based on that belief, it requires exerting every effort you can possibly muster to apply that faith to spiritual formation. You are not applying faith to participate in the divine nature and escape the correction of the world unless you are making every effort to embrace the formational culture of Christ, described in verses 6 and 7. This is what Christians have called discipleship for a couple thousand years. Discipleship is the gospel response to the frothing worldliness of our broken desires, whether they are legalistic or lawless. Discipleship is a path of God's power and generosity, a gift, but it's also an intentional path of effort, every effort. This formational culture of Christ is described in different ways in the Bible. The passage in 2 Peter shows us the progression. Faith, goodness, increased knowledge, growth in the discipline of self-control, applying self-control over time and perseverance, more holistic godliness, outgoing brotherly kindness, mature and gospel-centered love. By ending with love defined so deeply in a relationship to these seven steps of spiritual maturity, Peter shows how completely our passions need to be redefined and reordered. In the end, this discipleship is meant to unleash true, passionate love. Seeing mature love as the end goal ought to prove to us that substantive godliness is not the denial of desire, but the transformation of our desires into their most substantive, vibrant, and beautiful forms. Its goal is to express passion in a way that is consistent with the passion of the divine nature, the same passion that created and redeemed the world. In part two, we'll look more deeply at what this love is. In this chapter, I've attempted to present the problem of our love affair with worldliness and its most devastating consequences. In the next chapter, we'll look at how the Bible calls us to respond when we are sobered by the realization that we've traded substance for subsistence, love for lies.